Tonight's message, number 24 in our series of 25, is entitled, Burying the Dead. Now, I understand that doesn't sound right off the bat like a most positive topic. You know, It's like we get right to the end and let's talk about burying the dead. But this is a very important topic. It's one that was spoken of a lot in Scripture. seems to be a very big focus of Jesus' ministry. And so we want to understand what it means to bury the dead and better yet, to find out how we can be a part of that burial ourselves. Okay? So before we get started with tonight's presentation, let's please ask the Lord's blessing as we begin. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for another day of life. Lord, we don't want to take that for granted. It's not entitled to us. We're not owed it. It's a gift from you every day. It's a gift. And we thank you for this day. And we thank you in particular now for this time of fellowship and this time of study. And we thank you for your word. And most importantly, we thank you for Jesus Christ that gives us even the opportunity for a future life to come. So Lord, help us to not treat that in any kind of dishonorable, disrespectful way, but help us to treasure it and help us to build upon this as we walk closer and closer with Jesus all the time. Bless our study tonight, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, burying the dead is about baptism. I'll be very clear. This is what our topic is for tonight. And what we're going to do through this study, as you take out your worksheet, number 24, is you're going to see we're going to go right down through a series of questions about baptism. Is it required? Who is it for? When should it happen? What does it all mean? All of these things, we're just going to basically go down and see what the Bible teaches about baptism and its significance in the Christian life, okay? So we're going to start off with probably the most pertinent question that most people ask about baptism. Is baptism required for salvation? Is baptism a prerequisite, is a requirement for salvation? Let's go to the book of Matthew, chapter 28. First book in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 28, page 967 in your pew Bible. Matthew chapter 28, Jesus' final words recorded in the Gospel of Matthew after his death, burial, and resurrection, after he spent his time with them, he gives them what's known as the Great Commission. Starts with verse 18 of Matthew chapter 28. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So notice he's not speaking from, now I just grew up in Nazareth and I, no, no, no. He's saying, now all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And what's the next thing it says to do with them? Baptizing them in the name of the Son, uh, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And verse 20, also doing what? Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So their job was, now that Jesus is going away, he says, you will continue to all nations and you will baptize disciples. You will make disciples, which in part includes baptizing them and teaching them all things. Okay, This concept of baptism and teaching is important. But again, we're looking at, is baptism required? Well, first of all, apparently it's pretty important. As Jesus says, go make disciples, and the very first thing you do with them is baptize them. Okay, Go make disciples and baptize them. This is part of the Great Commission. It was a command of the Lord. Now, let's go to John. Keep going to the right. John chapter 3. 
page 1027 in your pew Bible, John chapter 3. Hear the interview with Nicodemus. We'll just start with verse 1 to give a little context if you're not familiar with the story. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and he was interested in Jesus, but he was a little bit ashamed to come in the daylight and talk to Jesus, so we have this midnight interview that he requests with Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, which of course means teacher, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, he's, notice it says he's a Pharisee, a leader of the Jews, and he says, he calls him a rabbi, a teacher, and says, we know that you are a teacher come from God. He seems to be speaking on behalf of the Pharisees and the leadership of Israel. Yet he's coming at night for a private interview. So Jesus, this is off a little bit. And notice Jesus' answer comes right to the heart. Jesus answered and said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So notice Jesus said, I'm not here just for interesting dialogue and for unique teachings. I'm not just another rabbi. He said, I'm talking about a total change unless one is born again. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So he tries to play it off on the physical. Are you saying we shrink down, we come back to being a baby, we go back inside our mother, then we come right back out? Is that what you're talking about, Jesus? Of course that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus answered, verse 5, Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of what? Water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, being born of the water is a reference to what? Baptism. Jesus himself says, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Well, that seems pretty um, direct, pretty forthright, pretty on the nose with the answer. Is baptism essential? Is it a requirement? It was a command of Jesus to go make disciples and baptize them. He tells Nicodemus, unless you're born of the water and of the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Let's, get, let's go to one more. Look at the, another gospel account. Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16. It's going to be page 988. Starting with verse 15, this is Mark's account of the Great Commission. And it says, And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Then follow it up. He who believes and is what? Baptized will be what? Saved. I mean, that seems pretty forthright. And he who does not believe will be what? Condemned. So it seems if Jesus made it part of his great commission, told Nicodemus that you must be born of the water, and he says here, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, it seems that baptism is essential to salvation. But then you keep thinking, now wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. 
is there ever a case in Scripture where someone is assured that they will be saved, but they did not get baptized? Yes, of course. Let's go to Luke chapter 23. You might already be thinking of this. Just go to the right a few pages. Luke chapter 23, page 1023 in your pew Bible. Luke chapter 23, starting with verse 42. Here, of course, Jesus was not crucified alone. There were two thieves on crosses on either side of him. One apparently was ridiculing him harshly, and the other one noticed that this was truly the Son of God and laid his faith in Jesus Christ at the very last moment of his life. It says in verse 42, Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, what did Jesus say to Nicodemus? Unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And this man is literally on the cross. And he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Does Jesus turn and say, I would, but you haven't been baptized. I'm sorry. It's the water that gets you in. Of course not. Watch what Jesus says. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you today, and again, we've got to remember that, <laughs> that uh, difficult little comma there. You remember, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Definitive. Not like, well, I hope. Here's hoping. <laughs> or I really wish you could, but you can't. He said, you will be with me in paradise. The same Jesus who said you must be born again said, you will be with me in paradise. Now, how does that resolve? Let's go to our worksheet here. Notice the differences. The thief on the cross, which of course he dies upon that cross. He does not come down alive from that cross. They make sure of that. The purpose there is to inflict death, and it does occur. The thief on the cross died before he had an opportunity to be baptized. Thus, we see here, just from that simple illustration alone, the premise here on the second fill-in-the-blank, the act of baptism does not save. It is not baptism that saves. Jesus saves. Okay? Salvation is through faith in Christ alone. Okay? The act of baptism does not save. Salvation is through faith in Christ alone alone. In fact, I want to illustrate this from one of the passages we've just looked at. Go back, if you would, to Mark chapter 16. Let me show you that that same concept is right there in Mark chapter 16. Again, Mark's account of the Great Commission, page 988. Starting with verse 15, Mark's account of the Great Commission. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And now notice very carefully, verses 16, what it says and what it doesn't say. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. It makes it sound just from that first sentence that you have to both believe and be baptized in order to be saved. But then notice what the next passage says as it continues. But he who does not believe will be saved condemned. Notice what is the active agent of salvation? Is it the baptism in water? No. 
It's the belief that leads to the baptism in water. Right? You believe and as a result are baptized. You believe and are baptized. Of course, I have every confidence that if Jesus Christ somehow miraculously brought that thief down from the cross and said, now, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, repent and be baptized, he wouldn't have said, oh, I didn't know baptism was a part of it. I'm sorry, that's that's a bridge too far. Of course not. But he didn't have an opportunity, and Jesus simply says, you will be with me in my Father's kingdom, in paradise. So again, look at carefully. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but it's not the baptism that does the saving. But he who does not believe will be condemned. Okay? We can see this concept very clearly articulated in the Gospels. For instance, John chapter 3. Later on in that same interview with Nicodemus, Jesus has these words. John chapter 3. Noting that belief, this faith relationship in Jesus Christ is the active agent in salvation, not the ritual of the water, the baptism being the active agent. John chapter 3, verse 36 this time. He who believes in the Son has what? Everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God abides on him. Notice in this one, there's no mention of baptism. Does that mean Jesus is all done with baptism? No. But what's the active agent of salvation? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, there's a passage of Scripture that literally says that. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. But John 14, let's continue to the right. If we truly do believe Jesus, if we truly do love Jesus and put our trust in him, If he commands us to do something, will we do it? Yes. Okay? John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus says it so simply and so sublimely. If you love me, do what? Keep my commandments. So if we believe in Jesus and we love Jesus, then if Jesus asks us to be baptized as an evidence of that love, we're not going to say, well, no. See what I'm saying? If we truly love Jesus, we truly believe in him, if he asks us, okay, we'll do it, no problem. Now again, it's not that the water does anything miraculous or magical or salvific. It's not the thing that does the saving. It's the faith in Jesus Christ. But friends, faith always has expression, right? Faith always has expression. It's demonstrated. It's not just theory. It's practical application, and Jesus gives us a way to express that faith. Believe and be baptized. Again, the baptism doesn't do the saving, but the belief will always manifest itself in outward demonstration. There'll be an evidence of our faith. 1 John chapter 5, in verse 3. Moving farther to the right, 1 John chapter 5 and verse 3. I don't know how, you, how language could be any plainer than right here, chapter 5 and verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his, what? Commandments. This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. This is how you know that you truly love Jesus, that it's not just mere theory. That it's not just an idea, it's not just, but it's actually life application. 
if you love me, keep my commandments. And then he goes on to say, and his commandments are not burdensome. Oh, you know, I would get baptized, but it's just so hard, uh, you know. Or I would keep the Sabbath, but it's just so, or I would stay faithful to my wife. I, I would decide not to steal, or I would stop killing. But he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. My commandments aren't a burden. I'm not forcing something bad on you. This is an expression of your faith. If you love me, keep my commandments. It's just that simple. So here he goes. This is love. This is the love of God if we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So the question is, is baptism required for salvation? Yes. Because if you love me, you will keep his commandments. Now, again, it's not the baptizing that does the saving, but it is an expression of a saving faith. And if that faith is genuine, it will result in obedience. Are we seeing the clear connection? Okay. Now, let's move on now. How to be baptized. How to be baptized. Ephesians chapter 4, because you might say, well, there's a lot of different beliefs about this. There's a whole bunch of different ways to be baptized, and Different churches practice different things. Page 1026 is where we're headed. Well, 1126. It's a typo there. Sorry, in my notes. 1126, Ephesians chapter 4. You can say, well, this church does it this way. This church does it this way. And it really doesn't matter as long as there's some water involved, I guess. Or, But look what the Bible says about this. Very clear. Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to start with verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one what? Baptism. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So in the same way that there is one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one God, one Father, there is one baptism. Apparently, there's not like just you get baptized, you do whatever you think feels good to you, or whatever your church tradition is. Apparently, there is one, and good thing the Bible doesn't leave us in the dark dark as to what that one entails. Okay, It makes it very clear. What is that one baptism? Well, we see a consistent picture throughout Scripture of what baptism actually entails. Next, our fill-in-the-blank there, the Greek word that we get our modern-day baptism from is very similar, baptizo. And it literally means to be completely put in water, not just have water put on. Okay? So it means to go in water, not just to have water on. You go in the water, the water doesn't go on you. Okay? You go in, not the water goes on. Because okay, they're different. Well, some people pour, some people kind of, you know, do different things. What's the actual biblical concept? The word itself gives away the methodology. The method of baptism that the Bible, the one baptism the Bible ever describes, is you going into the water. And, of course, coming back out of the water. You don't stay down there. You go in, and then you come back out, right? But you go in. You're going to see this over and over. John chapter 3. Let's get some biblical backup for this, for this statement. John chapter 3, page 1027 in your pew Bible. John chapter 3, verse 23. As soon as Jesus was done with the interview with Nicodemus, it describes 
the mission of John the Baptist, and why he chose where he chose. Now, John was also baptizing in Anon near Salem because, why did he choose that location? Because there was much water there. So if you're going to be baptizing people, apparently you need much water. You don't need, like, you just take a flask around and, like, just anoint people with water and pour people or spritz them or spray them or drip them, you know. It's, you need a lot of water. And that's why he chose that place. Now, John also was baptizing Nanon near Salem because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized. They came and were baptized. Matthew chapter 3. Jesus was one of those. Matthew chapter 3, page 10, I'm sorry, 937. Jesus was one of those who came to John the Baptist for baptism. And of course, John the Baptist, you know, the Baptist wasn't his last name. His name was John, right? But he was known for that one particular rite, that one particular ceremony. He would baptize people. That's what he was called to do. And thus we got got the, the moniker John the Baptist. John chapter 3, Matthew, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 3, starting with verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. Now it's interesting. What happens here in verse 14? And John tried to prevent him. What does prevent mean? To stop. Now, that's a weird thing. Now, I don't know as a preacher I've ever done that. Like, hey, I want to get baptized. No, 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 baptism's not for you. But Jesus comes, I'd like to get baptized. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Baptism's not for you. Because what was the purpose of baptism? For repentance, for confession, to clear guilty conscience, right? To start clean with the Lord. But Jesus was clean with the Lord, right? He was a clean slate. No need to erase anything. Nothing to be blotted out. Nothing to start over from. But Jesus come and, comes and does this anyway. Request this. Of, notice this interesting dialogue. Again, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And are you coming to me? Now, obviously, friends, let's be clear. Jesus did not need baptism for personal confession and repentance of sin. Jesus, though tempted in all points, was without sin. Let's be clear about that. And this is what John was saying. He's like, whoa, 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 you don't need it. But Jesus has a different picture in mind. He says, but Jesus answered and said to him, permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. It needs to be fulfilled. I need to do this. And of course, I believe that Jesus understood the prophecies of the Bible, that there was a time for his public ministry to start. Notice he says, permit it to be so now. I'm on a schedule here. I need to get started. And of course, we studied, if you recall, Daniel chapter 9, those 490 years. And exactly at this right time in A.D. 27, the anointing of the most holy, that is Jesus himself, would occur. Jesus looks at his schedule. He says, you're here right on time. We're at the water. It's time for my ministry to begin. I need to be baptized by you. And John says, no, 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 stop. And Jesus says, yes, yes, yes. It has to go forward. You know what's interesting to me? Jesus' closest companions and most faithful followers, when they don't understand the mission of Jesus, would try to divert him. Jesus is like, I'm on a schedule. It's time to get my baptism ready to go, launch my public ministry. And John's like, no. 
At the end of his ministry, Jesus is headed to Jerusalem to offer his life as a sacrifice, and Peter says, no, I rebuke you, you won't go. And he says, get thee behind me, Satan, right? Because Jesus understands, my time has come. And here Jesus said, I have to, you don't understand what you're talking about. It's not for remission of sin. It's to start my public ministry. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. Let it be so now. And praise the Lord, John relented. Jesus won that argument, which Jesus wins every argument. Okay. Then he allowed him. Now notice verse 16. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from where? From the water. If he comes up from the water, that must, means he must have been down in the water. Because there was much water there, Jesus comes to him and they're out in the river, not near the river, and he puts them in the water and he comes back up out of the water. That's how Jesus was baptized. And if the Bible says there's one baptism, then however Jesus is baptized is how we should be baptized. Notice this now. When he had come up, when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. But how was Jesus baptized? By going down into the water and then coming back out. Let's go to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 1, page 968. Mark chapter 1. You see the same thing again. It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John. Where was he baptized? Near the Jordan River? By the Jordan River? No, in the Jordan River. And immediately coming up from the water, so he went in to the Jordan River and came up from the water. He saw the, the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. So the gospel record is consistent that Jesus didn't just go to John for baptism, but he went into the river, went down in, and then came back out. Acts chapter 8. Obviously, the leaders of the New Testament church, once Jesus left, recognized this form of baptism as the one baptism that the, that the Lord endorsed which, of course, his own personal example is a pretty strong endorsement. And here we have the early Christian leaders following suit. Acts chapter 8 is a fascinating, actually, uh, a fascinating story here uh, of, of a conversion of, of an individual. And we're not going to read the whole thing through but I would, uh, right now, but we're going to come back to it. But notice it, verse 38. So he... That is this Ethiopian eunuch, which we're going to get to know a little bit later in, the, in, our, in our message tonight. But for right now, he commanded the chariot to stand still. And both Philip and the eunuch, no, notice the language, went down what? Into where? The river. Into the water. And he baptized him. So apparently this form of baptism requires both to go down in and then become baptized. You go down in, you baptize and now notice verse 39. Now, when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. You know, I've always wondered, will that happen to me when I baptize someone? We'll, we'll both come up, smile, and all of a sudden I disappear? 
I don't know. Apparently the Lord has done it before. That'd be really awesome. But that's what happened to Philip. But before the Lord whisks him off to his next assignment, they both go down into the water and baptize and then come back up out of the water. So again, baptism always, always is down in and then comes back out of the water. Now, let's go to our next question. Who should be baptized? Who should be baptized? Page 967 again. Matthew chapter 28. This one, I want to take our little bit of time on and make sure we see it clearly. Again, the Great Commission, page 967, Matthew chapter 28. Who should be baptized? Again, verse 18, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Now, before we go any farther, what is a disciple? A follower, right? Not necessarily of Jesus, even though, of course, that's what Jesus is asking, but did John have disciples? Yes, they were the ones who followed after him and learned from him and got, followed his instruction, followed his teaching. A disciple is someone who has learned at the feet of someone else, or an apprentice, you would say, so a follower. So it's not a mere acquaintance. It implies that a disciple is someone who walks after someone, who follows in their footsteps, who believes along the same line, who accepts their teachings. That's what a disciple is not someone who's just been briefly introduced. For instance, there were plenty of people who saw Jesus do a particular work of ministry on some day, but did that make them a disciple? Because they met Jesus, so they encountered... No, no, no. A disciple is one who had followed him step by step by step, had asked him questions, had listened to his answers, had learned his teachings, had taken to heart his doctrine, had tried to follow what he does. A disciple is a follower of Jesus, not just an acquaintance of Jesus. The implication here in Matthew chapter 28, go therefore and make disciples, and then who should you baptize? Them. So apparently you're a disciple, and then you get baptized. Okay? Baptism is not the first step in following Jesus. See what I'm saying? It is not like, hey, I just met Jesus today. Let me get baptized, and then I'll decide to follow you. Baptism is a commitment to a walk you already have. Right? But then it grows from there. Notice this also. Baptizing him in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And what's that next verb? What's the next very next word? Teaching them to observe just enough to get by. Is that what it is? Just tell them my name and tell them that I love you and that's it. No, no, no. Apparently, this is a process of instruction that includes teaching all things that Jesus commanded. Now, how much has Jesus commanded? Well, that's a pretty big thing. I mean, that includes all the scripture, right? I mean, he started from the very beginning. He was Jesus who formed us in his image. I mean, this is, this is a huge thing that Jesus says. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Let me tell you something, friends. I'll just be very honest with you. It makes me nervous when people who have had no particular walk with Christ at all hear one message 
hear one sermon, and they're like, oh, and there's an appeal for baptism. Oh, I'm headed down. I'm going to make this commitment. You don't know what you're committing to. Right? Now, the first time I met my wife, I really liked her. Right? I was intrigued enough. I wanted to learn more. But you know what I didn't want to do? Get married yet. Because <laughs> she still might be crazy. Right? <laughs> You know, I need to learn some stuff. Now, I'm interested. I want to learn more. I'm going to follow. I want to follow. But at some point, now, have I learned everything about my wife yet? No. Every day, something new comes up. Didn't see that before. All right, we're learning, right? But I know enough to make a solid commitment that whatever comes next, I'm willing to stay with it. See what I'm saying? So there's, there's a process language here. You become a disciple, you follow after Jesus enough to say, you know what, I don't know everything yet, but I know that whatever comes next, I trust it because I already have a working, walking, talking, breathing relationship with Jesus Christ. So it makes me nervous when people say, I've never heard the name of Jesus, but I'm ready to get baptized. No, you're not. Because you need to have something bigger that your faith is grounded on than just an emotional high or an interesting acquaintance or one message from some pastor. You need to be in the Word enough to say, now I understand who Jesus is. I want to walk and talk and learn more, but I know for certain that I'm not getting off the boat now, that I'm staying with Jesus no matter what. So Jesus says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. And I'll just throw out my own little pet peeve. We can talk like people now, right? This is 24 times we've been together, right? If not, well, okay. There, there's a word that goes around in Christian circles today that says that you're a disciple of Jesus Christ because you have been discipled. The root word of disciple is discipline, Okay? And I know that doesn't sound like a popular word because it sounds like, ooh, I need to correct some things. Yes. Some changes need to be made. It's discipline. You know, we don't come into Jesus Christ as a pre-finished, perfect work, and we're just acknowledged for what we are. He has to work. Look at the disciples. When they started off, they were not the finished product yet. But the Lord had to work with them and work with them, and reshape them, and correct them, and sometimes rebuke them, other times encourage them, but grow them up into Christ so that when they were standing on their own two feet, they were new men, they were new people. It's not just like a disciple is someone who is willing to submit to the discipline of Jesus Christ and his word. It says, Lord, I don't want to find out if I fit the Bible, and if not, let the Bible correct to fit me. Say, Lord, whatever these teachings are, I love you enough that I want to obey. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. When Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, he's saying, I'm the one with authority, not you. Therefore, so he commands his disciples, therefore you go, because I have the authority to send you, And your job is to make disciples, teach them things, even if they are things they don't already believe. Which, by the way, why would you teach someone something they already knew? 
You know? If I go to class and all they do is teach me stuff I learned before, I didn't get my money's worth. There was a fad, there was an educational fad a while back that I took a few of my, hopefully in a Christ-like, loving, kind way, but probably not, took a few of my teachers to task with, even in college, because they would come into classes like, look, you know, we're all just learning, so we're, I'm just a learner just like you. I will slow down. I paid you a lot of money. You better know more than me, right? I'm coming to you because I don't know stuff, right? When we come to the Word of God, we're not going to just say like, all right, I'm a peer, you're a peer, you've got your opinion, I've got my opinion, let's come with a compromise. No, 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 no. We say, I'm wrong, and you're right. I need to be disciplined to become more like Jesus. So Jesus says to his disciples, go therefore and make disciples. That means discipline people. Teach them all things and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So let's go to our fill-in-the-blanks here. In the Great Commission, I want to be clear about this, teaching is a prerequisite to baptism. You need to know enough to commit with your understanding. Hopefully, as we've studied this great controversy, God doesn't want to do anything by force. He doesn't want to do anything by manipulation or deceit or trickery. He wants you to know and choose you this day whom you will serve. He doesn't want, I don't want to just sing a song or just have an emotional appeal or just do something merely like that and twist your arm, even though you don't realize it's being twisted, into making a decision for Jesus Christ. I want you to know the truth from God's word for yourself and with a clear mind and a level head say, yes, I want to follow Jesus, right? Teaching is a prerequisite to baptism. A disciple is someone who, having learned about Jesus and his message of truth, surrenders his life to him and shows that surrender by being baptized. Okay, notice the sequence. A disciple is someone who has learned, so they know what they're doing, makes the choice to surrender their life, and that surrender is demonstrated or is shown through the ceremony of the rite of baptism. Baptism is simply the outward sign of an inward commitment, right? Baptism is not the thing that saves you. Only Jesus saves you. But if you are in a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, you have obeyed his word, and he commands you to get baptized, you will get baptized. Because that's what you do when you love Jesus, is you keep his commandments, right? Again, a disciple is someone who, after having learned about Jesus and his message of truth, surrenders his life to him, and shows that surrender by being baptized. So, it's imperative down this third line. If you don't know Christ and his commands, you're not ready to surrender and be baptized. I'm just going to tell you, and I don't want to preach a sermon that says, hey, hey, don't get baptized, but I want you to know that you need to know. Knowing is important to the Lord. He doesn't rely on tricks, and he doesn't rely on coercion. He wants you to have information to make a decision for yourself. If you don't know Christ and his commandments, you're not ready to be baptized. Bottom line. Acts chapter 8. Let's go back to that Acts chapter 8 account that I said we would return to earlier. Acts chapter 8, starting with verse 26. This is backing up early in the story. 
that we had seen the baptism, but we're going to go, what led up to this baptism? I want you to, this is an illustration of the Great Commission. Acts, 20, uh, Acts chapter 8, verse 26, page 1060. Now, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go towards the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So the Lord speaks to him and says, Get up and go. So Philip, being a good faithful disciple, obeys his master. So he gets up and goes. So, verse 27, he arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. Okay, so he's told the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him and says, I need you to go here. Notice he doesn't say who you will find there, what you're going to do. He just says, get up and go and trust me. And he's learned, all right, I love the Lord enough that if I love him, I'll keep his commandments. So he commands me to go, so he gets up and goes. It's a beautiful expression of faith. And where does he go? It's a desert. The Lord says, all right, get up and go to the desert. Okay. He doesn't say, why? What's in it for me? How long is it going to take? Do I have to? <laughs> Are we there yet? No. The Lord says, walk that way. Till when? Just do it. <laughs> so he gets up and goes. And behold, lo and behold, he runs into this eunuch, this man, this great leader, this man of great authority over the treasury of, Egypt, uh, uh, of Ethiopia. And ha, 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 it's a divine appointment. The Lord brought him there for this purpose. Again, it says now, verse 28, was returning, returning from Jerusalem because he'd gone up there to worship. Apparently, he was interested. He was a worshiper of the true God, yet he had not been a convert yet. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading, what was he reading? Isaiah the prophet. He was studying the scripture. He was having a little Bible study. He was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the Spirit said to Philip, I love how they have this relationship. The Spirit's like, okay, get up and go. Then he sees eunuch. Is that, is that him? Yeah, yeah, that's him. Now go over to him. What's he reading? Isaiah. Okay, now ask him this question. Go near and overtake this chariot. Now, I assume the chariot is sitting still as he's reading. I don't know how bumpy it would be, to, you know, uh, or if he can run ahead, but maybe it was moving and he can run fast. But he says, you go catch up to that chariot. Go, go get him. Okay, Lord. So Philip ran to him. I love how he goes. He doesn't just stroll over or take his time. He runs. Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. So he's reading it out loud. And look at his question that he asked. Do you understand what you're reading. <laughs> you know, you get, you get a lot more Bible studies when you ask people if they want to study the Bible. But you're guaranteed not to have a Bible study if you don't invite the opportunity. Right? Here he says, do you understand what you're reading? If you see someone reading the Bible someday, hey, do you want to study that more? Do you understand what you're reading? Might end up a nice Bible study. Philip does the same thing. Do you understand what you're reading? And notice his answer, verse 31. And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And Philip, well, how fortuitous is this? Here I am. And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the scripture which he read was this. And of course, it's Isaiah chapter 53 a prophecy of the Messiah, the coming Savior, Jesus Christ. 
course, at this point has already come and has been slain. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And notice the question that the eunuch had. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or some other man? Is this just his own personal diary? This is what's going to happen in my lifetime to me? Or is this for someone who's to come? Some other man? Then, verse 35, Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture. Notice he's not limited to this scripture. He doesn't just answer this question, but uses this as a springboard for a much more intense Bible study. Beginning at this scripture, preached what? Jesus to him. Of course, the centerpiece of every Bible study must be Jesus Christ. Preach Jesus to him. Now, as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Notice, now that he understands what the scripture is teaching and who Jesus really is and the ministry of Jesus Christ, now he has the desire to get baptized. Now I can commit because now I understand. What hinders me from being baptized? And then verse 37, Then Philip said, If you what? Believe with all your heart, you may. Notice belief is the prerequisite for baptism, but belief is always manifested in baptism. If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So immediately, verse 38, So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. Now that you understand the scriptures, you have an un, a clear understanding of Jesus in his ministry, and you want to commit to that, then we get baptized. Very clear sequence of events. By the way, um, this is, how, this is Jesus' method of preparing people to accept him. You find the same thing in Luke chapter 24. Jesus, after his resurrection, walks along the road to Emmaus with a couple confused disciples. And Jesus, and it records, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus didn't just say, hi, I'm Jesus, and let me show you my scars. He said, hi, let me show you from the word of God who I am. This is the method of preparation for baptism, is a scriptural understanding of the Jesus and his truth. Same thing in Nehemiah chapter 8. Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding. Now, I like to bring out this passage because is this talking about three genders? There's men and there's women, and then there's those other people who can understand. As though men and women can't understand, right? Of course that's not talking about that. I get asked oftentimes, what age are you allowed to get baptized? And the Bible doesn't give a, at this age you may be baptized. But the one litmus test it has for any faith commitment is the ability to do what? Understand. If you're a grown man, a grown woman, or old enough to understand, that's when you... So the prerequisite to baptism is understanding 
Jesus Christ from the Word of God so that you can make a knowledge, well-informed commitment. Well-informed commitment. Now, why baptism? Why this particular rite? In the Old Testament, sinners would place their sins upon the sacrificial lamb. We've talked about that in the sanctuary sacrifices, system of sacrifices. Once Jesus came to be that sacrificial lamb, we no longer kill animals in our place but instead spiritually join with Jesus in his death and resurrection. Jesus, of course, the Bible calls him the Lamb of God, the fulfillment of all those other shadow lambs, if you will, the typical lambs that pointed to the real thing of Jesus. So we still don't come. Now that Jesus has come and actually been the real thing who lived and died, we don't continue to take little lambs and place our hands on them and kill them because the real thing has come. Jesus Christ has actually shed his blood. But we still, by faith, connect ourselves to him in this ceremony called baptism. We place ourselves in his hands in this process called baptism, ceremoniously. Romans chapter 6 explains it so beautifully. Page 1089, Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. It says, or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his what? Death. The act of baptism joins you by faith into the death that Jesus died on your behalf. Okay? It's the joining by faith together with Jesus and the thing he literally did. Now we spiritually connect ourselves to it. Do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were, what's that next word? Buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the uh, the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. Let's look at our fill-in-the-blanks. This is very important to understand. Why did Jesus choose? Why did the Lord choose this particular right? It seems a little arbitrary. If you love the Lord, go jump in the water and come back out. Now, I'm not trying to be facetious or, or trifling or light, but a lot of people look at it as like, well, why? If you have this walking faith, commandment-keeping relationship with God, why would it have to be manifested? Why do you have to demonstrate it by going down into the water and coming back up? What on earth does that prove? Well, Paul explains it. It's a spiritual identifying of yourself with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism, again, here it is, fill in the blank, is a reenactment of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. You'll notice that. You're going to do the same thing that Jesus went to, went through, except physically dying he did we simply replicate it in a ceremony when you get baptized the last thing you do is you take your last breath right and then you quit breathing if you don't quit breathing it's going to be a very awful baptism experience when you're under the water you do not breathe right jesus of course breathed his last And you go in and you're buried. And then you come back into the newness of life. 
why Jesus called it being born again. You're, getting, you're starting all over. It's a transition from that was the old life that has passed away and died. And everything on this is a new creature. It's that transition point. It's from death to life. You're laying that old man in the watery grave, which is why they refer to it as the watery grave. And the new man in Christ is coming forth. And again, there's nothing magical about the water that does it. But it's the faith that says, Lord, I'm ready to die to that old life and live a new life in you. A disciple is, uh, I'm sorry, going back down here. One of the biggest problems in the church is that we too often bury people alive. We too often bury people while they're still living that old life of sin. They'll go through the form, but they haven't really died. And they come back up just a wet version of the same thing they were. This is why the message is entitled Burying the Dead. That's who baptism is for, people who are ready to spiritually die to that old life and walk fresh in a newness of life and a commitment to Jesus Christ. One of the biggest problems in the church is that we too often bury people alive. Of course, this leads us to the great irony of redemption is simply this. In order to live, you must first do what? Die. Hmm. Romans chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will what? Right. But if by the Spirit, notice not in the actual body, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Jesus says whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. One of the great ironies of the Christian life, at least apparent ironies, is that in order to live, you have to die. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him do what? Deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Any new life in Christ starts with a death to the old life of self. It's a transition point. It's saying, Lord, I'm done with that and I'm ready to start this. Baptism is not like a tweaking or an alteration or an improvement of the old life. It's death to the one and new in the other. Okay, It's a... It's a symbol of death that brings forth new life. And let me finish with this one concept. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I hear people talk about, I want to get baptized because I love the Lord, and I want to get baptized because... I want to go to heaven, and I want to be baptized into Jesus. But I don't want to join the church. You hear that sometimes, right? I want to be baptized into Jesus, but I don't want to join the church. I want to be spiritual, but not religious. I don't believe in organized religion. I don't think that, I just want to have a relationship with Jesus apart from the church. Well, there's a theological problem with that. Because the church is the body of Jesus Christ. So if you're going to join me, I'm going to bring you into fellowship 
with the others who have done the same thing, and collectively you are the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting with verse 12. For as the body is what? One, and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is whom? Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into what? One body. And he just told us what that body is. That body is the church. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink in, made to drink in one Spirit. For if in fact the body is, for in fact the body is not one member but many. And then verse eighteen. Now you are the what? The body of Christ and members individually. Collectively, the body of Christ that you join, that you become a part of when you get baptized into Christ is not some spiritual, ethereal, cloudy, nebulous, vague thing, an idea. It's a literal, tangible group of people that say we are the body of Christ. Jesus says, if you want to join me, you join my body. You connect to me, you're going to become part of the church. There is no baptism into Jesus apart from his body. John chapter 11. Why do, we, why do we have to get baptized into a body of people? You know, I just want to have a relationship with Jesus and go my merry way. I don't want to have to deal with you people, some might say. John eleven forty four. 44. Notice this. I think this is so cool. You know, Jesus has the power to raise the dead. So when it gets to chapter 11... Well, look at verse 38, for example. Jesus comes to the tomb of Lazarus. And again, this is the Jesus who's about to command life into a dead man's body. And he comes and he says, Jesus, then Jesus again groaning in himself came to the tomb and it was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. He asks other people to do that. Could Jesus have done this by himself? Yes. But he has people do it. Why? Well, let's go on. Look at verse 44 now. And of course, verse 43, he commands with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And then in verse 44, and he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes. So I'm, I'm, he doesn't come bounding out of the tomb, right? Jumping and joining for joy. What's his condition when he comes out of the tomb? Yes, he's alive, but he's also what? Bound. Right? It's not this great dramatic entrance where, oh, it's not like that. He comes out, hang on just a minute. <laughs> dum, da, da, dum. Now, if Jesus can raise some from the dead, couldn't he also get rid of those grave clothes while he's at it? But then surely Jesus goes and unwraps him, right? Look at verse 44. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. When Jesus brings a dead person to life, he always brings them into connection with other people. Your walk with Christ is never alone because you are a part of the body of Christ. And apparently it's good for us 
to deal with each other. The Lord wants us to help each other. Now, could the Lord do everything that's required by himself? Of course. But instead, he brings us into connection with other believers so that we can grow and be edified and help each other out. He said, look, he's a brand new. Think of baptism as, again, death to life, right? Use Lazarus then as a metaphor. He's brand new living again, but he's still bound up in some old stuff, right? Jesus puts him in connection with other people. Now you help him grow stronger in his new life. You help him free him. You see what I'm saying? You loose him and set him free. This is what the purpose of the church is to do. To take those, to make disciples, to baptize them, and once they're baptized, continue to grow and teach them and set them free and let them go and build them into disciple makers as well. Which is what, by the way, we're going to come to on our last message tomorrow. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17. Again, if you love me, keep my commandments, Jesus says. And if you want to die to self, live a new life in Jesus Christ, and become part of his body on earth, you should be looking for the body that keeps his commandments. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, that is the church, the body of Christ, and went to make war with the rest of her offspring. And who are the rest of her offspring? Those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Friends, I'm going to make a very clear appeal tonight, and I want you to know from the outset that it does not hurt my feelings one way or the other whether you respond or not. What I'm asking for is simply a public demonstration of a personal commitment. Hopefully this isn't being sprung on you. I haven't tried to twist your arm. I haven't made threats, at least publicly. No, I haven't made any threats. But we're going to sing one song, and I'm going to make an appeal tonight. And whether anyone responds, that's between you and the Lord. Are we clear about this? But what I'm going to ask for is two things. Number one, and I know there are people here already tonight who have already expressed their faith. But I'm not asking you to tell me. I'm asking you to publicly express that to the Lord. Number one, if you are ready to get baptized. If you've had a walk with Jesus Christ, you've never been baptized, or it's been so long you walked away from Jesus Christ and you need to be baptized again, right? You need to start fresh with the Lord Jesus Christ, not just, you know, I had a bad day, but literally I, I was out of the church, I was away from God, and I need to start all over again. Number one, I need to be baptized, and I'm ready to be baptized. Or number two... I'm ready to get ready to be baptized. Like, I don't know everything yet, but I like what I see, and I want to learn more so that I can make that informed decision for baptism. That's where I'm headed. I'm not there yet, but I'm ready to get ready. Do you understand what I'm asking for? There's one group of people that says, I am ready to get baptized. I'm ready to go. Another group says, I'm not ready yet, but I'm ready to get ready. I know where I need to go. And I want to study more. I want to know Jesus better so that when I make that commitment, I'll be doing it of my own clear choice. Does everyone understand what I'm asking for tonight? Okay, good. So what we're going to do now is sing a simple song. It's not going to be a prolonged appeal. I'm not going to call people out. I'm not going to point fingers unless the Holy Spirit moves, but I've never had that experience yet. Okay. But what I'd like you to do is take out your hymnal and sing number hymn, hymn number 287. In number 287, I'd like us to all stand as we sing this song. And if the Spirit of God moves upon your heart,
to come down front and say, Lord, either I'm ready to get baptized or I'm ready to get ready. I want you to come down front. Hymn number 287, softly and tenderly. Jesus is calling. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling for you and for me. At the heart's portal, he's waiting and watching, watching for you and for me. Come home, come home, ye who are weary, come home. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling Why should we tarry when Jesus is pleading, pleading for you and for me? Why should we linger and heed not his mercies, mercies for you and for me? Come stands if you would think of the wonderful love he has promised promised for you and for me though we have sinned he has mercy and pardon pardon for you and for me come home Father, I just want to thank you so much that you not only created us, but you also sent your Son to die for us so that though we have sinned, we can still come home. And Lord, I thank you for all the commitments that have been made, and I especially want to thank you for those who have publicly affirmed their walk with you and want to make that deeper commitment to either be baptized or to study for baptism. They're ready to get ready. Lord, we want to thank you for this, and I want to ask a special prayer of dedication for these people. I know that they are precious in your sight, 
And I know that they're going to be facing difficulties ahead because Satan is not happy when people walk towards Jesus. But we know that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And so, we, Lord, we ask for divine protection, continued guidance, and step-by-step growth in Jesus until each one of us reflects fully the image of God. And, Lord, I also know that there are those who did not come forward, and I don't know exactly who they are, but you do. And you know where their walk is. Lord, I would ask that you continue to knock on their heart's door. Send your Holy Spirit to answer any question, to soften any obstacle, to whatever, to smooth the way so that that decision for the right can be made, not just for a day or for the moment or for this series, but, Lord, for the rest of eternity, that there might be an everlasting commitment to Jesus Christ. Let that commitment be ours as well. For those who have already committed, let this be a recommitment so that we continue to grow in Christ until we see him come again soon and very soon. And it is my prayer that we see him in our lifetime. But, Lord, it's also my prayer that when he returns, that not one will be missing. Lord, hear our prayer and answer us in the timing of your will and through the mercy of Jesus Christ, for we pray it in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.